The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. It is Wednesday night on The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. ABSA is a registered FSP. Well, there's a crossover between the mining in Daba and the State of the Nation address. So if Cape Town hasn't felt busy enough this week, it's about to feel a whole lot busier as the road closures and everything else takes hold over the next 24 hours. Um, just a heads up, there won't be a Money Show tomorrow, but... There will be Clement Manitella and Mandy Wiener broadcasting live from the parliamentary precinct and to cover what no doubt will be a disrupted but within the law start to the um, to the State of the Nation address. These things are never tidy and never neat, but um, the new rules in place, of course, but that will be carried live, of course, on this station from this time tomorrow evening. So uh, there won't be a money show, but there certainly will be a show that will impact the value of your money. How's that? Uh, we will talk the mining in Darba this evening. We're going to chat to Michael Power, uh, the consultant to 91, but he's also a deep thinker on the state of the world and South Africa's place in it. We'll talk to the guys who are bringing Pret-a-Manger, Pret-a-Manger uh, to South Africa and why they believe that will work. Plus, at half past seven, the guy who bet big on Edgar's and appears to be winning, Norman Drisselon, our shapeshifter. He's at Retailability. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. You can give us a shout on 011-883-0702. Tweet us at 702 or at Bruce Business. And you can WhatsApp, of course, voice messages to 072-702-1702 this evening. There's a huge amount of criticism, and understandably so, of the many different kinds of policy choices, foreign policy choices and the economic alignments that South Africa has been taking in recent years. And is, is it as odd as it may appear, or is it actually perhaps a stroke of brilliance considering the way the world is reshaping. A really interesting take on the real state of the globe ahead of our State of the Nation address tomorrow and how South Africa is positioning itself for the future. Uh, Michael Power is a consultant at 91 and it's good to have you on the radio again, Michael Power. When you look at the state of the world and South Africa's place in it, I saw a piece from you today which suggests there may just be a little bit of method in what people might regard as South Africa's foreign policy madness of current times. You may be right, uh, Bruce, and Kung Hei Fat Choi in this Year of the Dragon. Um, I, I think that uh, it's probably unintended, um, uh, and I might not go and say method in madness, but uh, it's definitely unintended. But the reality is I think South Africa has, uh, by virtue of its own history, tended to be rather navel-gazing, uh, in, in economics at least, uh, since 1994. Um, and meanwhile, the world has changed, and that's what I really wanted to talk to today. And the world has changed, and it has changed markedly. And I mean, the common sort of parlance goes, by 2028 or 2030, pick a date, uh, China's going to be bigger than America, more a bigger, more powerful economy. And then in more recent times, people say, oh, China's lost the plot. Yes, it's still growing, but the stock market's going nowhere. There's too much government intervention. China has lost the plot. Watch India. But you look at that and you go, hold on a second, perhaps we're looking at it and measuring this world of ours 
in the wrong way. I would agree with that. And the problem is, is that we tend to focus on China, focus on India, without yet uh, really focusing back on the granddaddy of them all, at least as things stand today, and that is the United States, and realize that, that the United States itself is in a, in a bit of a pickle. Um, it is letting debt run away with itself. Um, and we've seen debt, for instance, for the, the government go from $8 trillion to $34 trillion since uh, just before the GFC. Um, and uh, there is even the likes of Jamie Dimon starting to warn now that if this isn't um, uh, reined in, uh, there's going to be a crisis sometime in the next uh, decade. I'm, I'm a little less confident that it'll last 10 years before that happens. And the reason for that is the numbers are terrifying. I mean, the, the first number that scared me today was that the global financial crisis was 16 years ago. That's 2008. Time does fly. But the level of U.S. debt and how that is quadrupled and how the U.S., which is this very big and very powerful and very influential country, however, as you say, is allowing its deficits to expand and balloon and perhaps get to a point where the U.S. government can no longer control it. The other thing is, of course, is that this debt has to be financed. Now, some of it is obviously financed from within the United States, but a very large proportion, around 30% historically, maybe a little bit down on that now, um, has been financed by foreigners. And I think at some point, the kindness of strangers um, may run out. Now, I don't think it's particularly going to run out uh, quickly in areas like say, the United Kingdom or uh, much of Europe or Japan. But a lot of the surpluses in the world that are redeployed in order to essentially uh, stop the hole in the United States, I mean, just to make the point here, you know, with 4.3% of the world's population, they run 50% of the world's current account deficits. Um, that uh, hole stopping that is done by foreigners is increasingly reliant on uh, money is coming from non-Western countries. And the evidence is, is that non-Western countries are starting to get skittish. Uh, so, uh, which is why I'm less confident than Jamie Dimon that we've got 10 years left before this uh, moment of reckoning takes place. So what does that then mean, Michael? Because we've got, we got the president who's going to stand up in, and deliver the State of the Nation address, and he's going to have to dig very, very deep to have a credible State of the Nation because his first was disastrous of bullet trains and smart cities, and he got laughed almost off the podium. Um, and, you know, he's very been upfront about acknowledging failures of state, the, 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 the methods and methodologies that he is taking and his government is taking to bring in the private sector. And there's lots of encouraging noise on rail and electricity provision, all of those big and important issues. But at the same time, South Africa has lost much of its standing as a global citizen in recent years. I wonder if this isn't an opportunity for him to say we're part of a, a realignment of, of the world. How did you put it? Where the rest is getting fed up of the West sort of thing. Exactly. Look, um, I think that when you say um, South Africa is a pariah, much of that pariah status derives from the West and not the rest. And, and I would argue, looking forward 10 years, which side do you want to be on? Um, and it's not clear-cut to me, but it's definitely not obvious that you should be on the side of the West uh, because there are some big issues. Uh, and, you know, what's going on in the United States to some extent was going on in the UK as well. The whole Liz, Liz Trust fiasco was a, was a recognition of that. 
Um, the reality is, is that uh, much of the West has come addicted to what the welfare state. Um, their demographics are, are not good either, neither are China's, but the West are not good either. Last year, U.S. life expectancy fell below that of China. So, you know, let's not uh, be blind to the issues that are starting to affect the West. Um, I, I think China's got lots of problems which it's going to have to deal with, but I think it is trying to deal with it in a very original way. I'm not sure that I can say the same for the United States. If we look around and see what their great companies are in terms of having a global footprint, yes, there are the big tech companies, but yeah, you know, the companies like Boeing are going gone. Um, and Tesla's um, tripping and falling at the moment, not, notwithstanding the best efforts of our dear Elon. Um, uh, the United States is really going back to um, a few really big companies in the tech space um, that do have a, a global footprint. I'm not denying that. But beyond that, um, it's not producing very much. Hence, that 50% of the world's current account deficits being run by the United States. And just to follow that on, 42% of the world's budget deficit are run by the 4.3% of world population people of the United States. 43% of the world's budget deficits are now run by the United States. The man from Mars looking at those two statistics would say, hang on a second, <laughs> there's something really quite strange here. Has the U.S. fallen prey to its own PR? I mean, particularly the PR for the United States by people like Warren Buffett to say, never be bet against America. America always makes a plan. No matter what happens, there's always, you know, they've got the smartest people in the world. They always figure things out. There will be hiccups. The system will creak and crack from time to time, but never bet against America. Perhaps You've reminded me that I must look up exactly happening. when Warren said that, because... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if um, uh, their debt hasn't doubled or tripled since he said it. Uh, and I think that does start ultimately to make a difference, which is exactly what Jamie Dimon was saying last month with Paul Ryan. Um, Paul Ryan went on to say that this is the, you know, the most predicted crisis um, of the day. And, and, and he sees it too. The writing is on the wall. You can't carry on doubling and then doubling again in a relatively short space of time. Um, your national debt and expecting foreigners to finance 30% of it, um, it's just at some point they're going to say enough's enough. It's interesting that you, you ask that question when Buffett actually said it. And I've got a piece here that dates the 1st of March 2021, which coincides with Warren Buffett's uh, letter to shareholders. And uh, Warren Buffett is quoted as saying in his letter in 2021, despite some severe interruptions, our country's economic progress has been breathtaking. Our unwavering conclusion, never bet against America. That was as recently as 2021. So, um, yes, it, I think it's he not said like it a long time before, before that. I know he, he, that, wasn't, that wasn't the first time he said it. He's repeated it a number of times. No. Um, but I, I think the point is, is that I'm not sure that even, dare I say it, the great Warren Buffett, is aware of how unsustainable the debt profile of the United States is at the moment. Um, you know, they ran a 7.5% of GDP budget deficit last year at a time when supposedly the economy was going bang gangbusters and we had near full employment. Now, any economist worth his salt would say, hang on a second, there's something that doesn't add up here. 7.5% budget deficit and you're... Economy is going bank, uh, gangbusters, and you have, you're at, at full employment. No, something wrong here. And that, that debt is only going to go up this year. I mean, the, the first quarter of uh, the financial year 
um, it's heading towards uh, two trillion from one point seven trillion. Yeah. Oh, you and I have discussed this in the past, and I would like us to reiterate it this evening. And I, I again, I, I, I get very uncomfortable with anybody who's got a best best friend, uh, because if you fall out with your best best friend, then you need to go and find new best best friends, and that takes quite a long time. Um, we used to be besties with many Western powers. We're no longer besties with Western powers, and we we're sort of now aligning ourselves more with their competitors, opponents, their the people who are contesting dominance of the global economy, whether that be Russia, Brazil, China, India, those that, that grouping of countries. Whereas our, our good friends further north of us in Kenya, who are ticking many boxes and getting many more things right, seem to be playing both sides of the field far more effectively than we are. Let's just reflect on that for a moment before I let you go. Uh, I've done a piece on this as well, yes, Bruce. And, and absolutely, Kenya doesn't uh, believe in taking sides. It believes on all, uh, taking all sides and that in the end business is business, and they're very uh, pragmatic and uh, and practical about it. So they can have the King of England visiting one month uh, after the uh, the Foreign Minister of Russia has been there. Um, so it's it's it, you know they are much more pragmatic about this, and I and I have to say I'm I'm much more admiring of their foreign policy than I am um, of our own. By the way, um, their their minister or their, their ambassador to the United Nations after the invasion of uh, Ukraine stood up and made a speech, which is widely regarded as the best speech made on the subject, and he called Russia to account. Um, and so, yeah. you know, it's not as if they don't stand uh, up when they need to be counted. But at the same time, business yeah. is business, and they just get on with it. By the way, if I may, I can read you a wonderful uh, quote from the Indian Please. Foreign Minister last year. Um, and, and it captures the essence of what we've got. You know, everyone thinks that uh, India is somehow on the West side. He said this, Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems, and the world's problems are not Europe's problems. The fact of the matter is that even India is beginning to see the world differently. Um, and in, even India is now starting to take a, a, a different line. It's not, you know, we're not necessarily, in, the, in their case, definitely not in the China camp. But don't assume that they're somehow in the Western camp. And there are a lot of other countries, Kenya being one of them, um, uh, that are taking similar positions. As always, Michael Power, thank you very, very much indeed. Michael Power is a deep thinker on the state of the planet and South Africa's place in it. I'm curious, I'm as curious as you are as to what sort of spin the president puts on the State of the Nation address. It is not the most widely anticipated State of the Nation address in history. Um, I think there's a huge amount of cynicism. I think there's a huge amount of apprehension as to what the president has actually got that he can talk about from the perspective of things getting better. Um, He's often criticized when he goes down the rabbit hole of but look over here, this is working well, that's working well. There are some outlier stories in South Africa of success. However, um, you should never be playing down the failures in that same breath. You've got to take charge and take control of your failures at the same time as claiming credit for some of the admittedly wins, but small wins nevertheless. Uh, We mentioned earlier this week that the UK-based sandwich chain Pret-a-Manger is coming to South Africa. The man who's going to be bringing it here is Hamza Farouki. He is the chief executive of Milat Group. We'll talk to Hamza in just a bit, find out whether or not he plans to be charging 200 rand for a drink and a sandwich. We've got Wendy Nola coming up later. That horror of discovering that you've been paying your insurance premiums, life insurance premiums, for years.
and you go through the documents you say hold on a second who is that beneficiary i don't know who they are and you realize you've been defrauded or nearly defrauded um so we'll talk about that with wendy and how you should go about double checking your policies regularly the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by apsa cib Unlocking sustainable finance for mining across Africa through positive disruption to unearth their clients' growth ambitions. Absence a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. A soggy day on our markets, a soggy day on markets across Europe today. A slightly better start for the United States uh, in their morning session. Our rand has continued to deteriorate after a a brief rally yesterday. And commodity prices, particularly in the platinum group metals, coming under quite a lot of strain. It wasn't a good day either, Chris Stewart at 91. A great day for SAPI. They came out with results first thing this morning. Yes, they did, Bruce. Good evening. They announced their uh, first quarter results. Remember, SAPI has a September year-end, so this was the quarter ending 31 uh, December. And, you know, I guess the results were okay. Talking to EBITDA of around $156 uh, million, which on the face of it looked uh, quite a bit north of what the market was expecting, but included in that is uh, a fairly low-quality item, namely the forestry fair value adjustments. In other words, they uh, value or fair value the uh, stock that they've got in the ground, their trees. Uh, They marked that upwards to the tune of about $26 million uh, in the period. If you strip that out, the numbers were probably closer to in line uh, with market expectations, eight cents a share in US terms, uh, also roughly in line. But I think the guidance perhaps for the second quarter saying that the second quarter is likely to be pretty much the same as the first, uh, perhaps a little bit disappointing relative to market expectations, who were probably looking for things to improve a little bit in the second quarter versus the first. Yeah, and, and SAPI is one of those weird companies, isn't it? It's very old school business and it wasn't supposed to survive this long, I don't think. Yet it has. And it's, I think it's been quite a remarkable survival story um, for SAPI over the years where we weren't meant to be using paper anymore. And I don't know about you, but geez, I, I'm responsible for the death of trees. I really am on a daily basis. You can't scribble on your computer screen. Um, the manufacturers get cross when you claim on insurance. Uh, China keeps talking about stimulating their economy. We've got your old friend Michael Powell on the radio this evening. He's talking up the China story, saying, you know, depending on how you measure these economies, actually China's possibly in better shape than we we care to think. Certainly they keep on the stimulus bandwagon. Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, China's got a problem in that, uh, you know, they're not spending. The Chinese population are not spending. Um, and they're not spending for a variety of reasons. One is that there's some real concerns about overcapacity in the property market. We've seen, uh, you know, some high-profile property developers uh, going into uh, insolvency, uh, defaulting on some of their credit. Uh, There's still a belief, I think, that there's overcapacity in the Chinese property market, and given that that is such an important driver of the the wealth effect for the Chinese consumer, that, uh, you know, a negative property market has been negative for spending overall. Another key driver uh, of uh, so-called wealth effects and indeed spending in China being the Chinese equity market. The Chinese equity market has also uh, been absolutely woeful. If you look at the performance of of Chinese equities versus U.S. equities and and perhaps, uh, you know, if you look at the valuation 
of the Chinese market versus the valuation of other uh, either emerging or indeed developed markets. Certainly, it appears uh, on high-level metrics uh, to be cheap. The uh, policymakers making lots of noises about wanting to stimulate uh, the uh, equity market. But as with all these measures, whether it's a ban on short selling or whether you go out there and you know mobilize some state pension funds to go out there and buy equities, you can't really – uh, change the, the the tide of sentiment uh, sustainably. You, you've got to get sentiment on your side. So, you know, it's worked so far this week. I think the Chinese equity market up this week probably somewhere around six and a half to seven percent, which is pretty good by anyone's measures. Uh, the sustainability thereof, I think, will depend uh, on economic follow through. Um, and economic follow through, uh, you know, is still very much uh, clouded and probably more clouded uh, by the fact that we've got. Uh, you know, the potential for another uh, long and hard four-year regime under President Trump. And we all know that President Trump has the ability uh, to make some very broad sweeping statements, and mostly uh, those are negative uh, for sentiment on China. Uh, and finally, I wonder what you're thinking about pick and pay at the moment. I'm just watching the share price of pick and pay. I'm not sure if it's at its best level since Sean Summers returned, uh, but certainly it is showing more resilience than perhaps its peers, particularly Spar at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's showing some resilience. Um, you know, we're seeing, what, a 10% bounce here today, 3.5% uh, today. Uh, Bruce, uh, it's it's a long, long road ahead for pick and pay to turn around uh, their fortunes against a very, uh, a very strong competitor. Uh, there's obviously often in January you see mean reversion trends whereby the stocks that performed the worst uh, in calendar 2023 somehow have a miraculous bounce in 2024 as people go out there looking for bargains and looks at the, look at the stocks that have been uh, heavily sold off. But from an operational perspective, ShopRite has really, uh, you know, been eating pick and pay's lunch, and indeed, uh, Spa's lunch uh, 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 to that, you know, to that extent, uh, possibly Woolies Food excluded from that group. But the rest of South African food retail has really been dominated by ShopRite, and ShopRite keep going from strength to strength operationally. So, you know, whilst pick and pay may be having a bounce, I'm not necessarily tempted uh, because I think the operational turnaround has. There's quite some way still to go, Bruce. Chris Stewart, Portfolio Manager at 91, bringing us to half past six, this Eyewitness News. Now, brought to you by Khaliqs. Khaliqs for the businessman who knows what he wants. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. We'll go to the mining in Daba in just a moment. Uh, mining in Daba taking place in Cape Town in the same week as State of the Nation, which is why there's no money show tomorrow. This time tomorrow, you'll be either listening to the president speak or you'll be listening to people shouting at the president or you'll be listening to Mandy and Clement explaining why people are shouting at the president who's sitting down quietly and there are lots of shouts of order. We have no idea how it's going to play out, of course, uh, but you will have it live on your radio tomorrow night uh, between six and eight. In a few minutes' time, we'll talk to the guy who is bringing one of the world's most admired sandwich companies to South Africa. This is The Money Show on a Wednesday evening. The Money Show, of course, brought to you by those nice people at EPSA CIB. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show.
APSA CIB bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, mining, I, I think, is one of the world's more unforgiving industries. You don't determine the price of your product. The only control you have, and it's a, a loose control, is the cost of production. That's also tricky. And it's increasingly regulated. And governments are also more and more fussy about who they let dig up their countries because the legacy of mining, unfortunately, has been devastating in many societies. Stuart Newpin is Technical Mining Advisory Leader at Deloitte Africa. And it's risky, it's expensive, it's dangerous. But as Cape Town, I think, is showing this week, Stuart, thousands are keen to keep throwing money at the mining industry and that's a good thing right uh good evening Bruce. yes and uh we are at the we are we are at the mining in daba um and from all accounts the first uh, few days uh it would seem that uh it, there is uh there are a lot of people here there is um, a lot of activity um deloitte has just recently released our uh, our trends um about our recent uh, article on tracking the trends, and you're right, it is certainly uh, a mining industry which is in a very complicated uh, space. Um, there's a mixture of, of expectations from the mining industry. There's a mixture of demands in light of the the likely move to the the requirement for for in- metals which are critical for the energy transition. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, space, um, which the mining industry name at the moment. And the reality is, I mean, as much as people think mining is, belongs in the 1800s, it's, it is absolutely pivotal to human development. Human development increasingly dependent on minerals beyond just the, the very fancy and popular ones today that we sort of associate with the energy transition. Even the old-fashioned stuff like copper is in massive demand. Yeah, that was certainly been one of the takeaways which we've had over the last couple of days. Um, we One of the trends which we identified in our recent piece was that there is going to need to be uh, an increase in exploration, back to grassroots exploration. Um, if we are able to uh, to support, and you're exactly right, to support not just the, uh, the so-called critical metal, minerals or metals, but those metals which support normal um, industrialization um, of both our continent and, and the rest of the world. So yes, uh, mining has got an incredibly important role to play. Um, if and it's a, it's an interesting time for the industry uh, because there 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 is, I think someone said recently, never before has an in, so much been expected from an industry um, which has so little trust. So yes, it's going to be a matter of um, of um, mining sustainably, uh, and part of that will be will be a focus on explore. Will need to be a focus on exploration. Because the role of boards and chief executives today, in as much as it is about today and current production and making sure that the lights stay on and the minerals keep being mined, it is also ensuring that you know two or three boards and CEOs, hence. There is a pipeline of work that's been thought about now. Um, it's a multi-generational sort of industry, if you like. Yes, that's right, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, it takes a number of years in the, under the best circumstances to bring a mine through the phases of exploration and into development. Um, 
under that, under the best circumstances. But in what what happens more often is that the vagaries of the market, uh, difficulties in commodity prices, challenges in raising finance means that it can take up to 15 or 20 years to develop a mine. And so as a result, there is a need to constantly be feeding that pipeline. And what we wanted to see this year at the Endava was whether or not there are evidence um, that um, what we were suspecting would we would find is is some evidence now that there is going to be uh, additional um, funds going into exploration. Uh, and I think there there is appetite for it because you know without continual funding, without continual exploration, the pipelines run dry. I mean, fifteen years ago, I'm sure you were thinking about lithium. I wasn't. Um, it wasn't the sort of common mineral that we talk about today. Oh yes, no, we definitely need lithium. Lithium is definitely <laughs> the future. Well, certainly it's the present, um, and it's the all we have really in terms of the just energy transition. But I, I'm curious as to how you anticipate an event like the mining at DARPA and all of the smart people that it brings together under sort of one umbrella, um, how that is going to affect the way in which mining develops over the next decade or two? Well, if if we can start, I guess, by just giving a sense of, of what we have seen, uh, because I think that helps give paints a, a little bit of the picture. Um, what's certainly come out is that it is... It, it is a very, very uncertain environment. Uh, geopolitical environment is uncertain. Commodity prices are, uh, environment is uncertain. Um, but there certainly, it would appear to be that um, that the mining world is preparing uh, for an increase in in demand, uh, as you alluded to, um, and we see evidence of that in what's happening at the Endava. Uh, and Africa, and this is a, this is an investing in in Africa conference, uh, is well placed uh, to play a critical role uh, in that in that uh, mining industry of the future. We've seen we've seen a good mix of of major but big companies uh, who are appear to be investing in exploration. We've seen the junior mining companies, uh, which are the last blood in in many respects of of the exploration uh, industry as well. Uh, and we've seen um, a fair amount of presence and commitment from uh, the various representatives of, of, of governments, which we've seen here in Bar. So all in all, fairly encouraging. Thank you, Stuart Newpin. Stuart is the Technical Mining Advisory Leader at Deloitte Africa. In a moment, Hamza Faruqi, who is the Group Chief Executive of Milat. They are bringing to South Africa a new sandwich concept. Well, it's a new sandwich concept to us, but it's been around since 1984, if memory serves. Uh, we're going to be talking about why uh, the Milat Group is bringing Pret-a-Manger, a well-oiled machine from the United Kingdom and in 16 or 17 different countries at the moment to country number 18, which is South Africa. Coming up in a moment. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, I mentioned earlier this week that the UK-based sandwich chain Pret-a-Manger will be arriving in South Africa soon. Even in high-end developed markets where it operates traditionally, 
it's regarded as quite a pricey option. Um, where a drink and a sandwich in central London can cost you nearly 200 bucks. Even Woolies is going to balk at that sort of pricing. Hamza Faruqi is the group chief executive of Milat. Milat is bringing the concept to South Africa. You've won the license to operate Pret in South Africa, Hamza. Do tell me what the plan is in as much as you can, of course. Uh, thank you, Bruce. We're obviously super excited with the opportunity to bring a great proven brand. Um, but I can tell you something. Um, a lot of effort and time has gone and more is going to go in making sure that we very carefully curate uh, the brand. Many global brands always make the concept of just relying on the laurels of a global brand working in a market. We believe that South Africans are a very uh, specific type of consumer who need a lot of curation, who need a lot of attention. And that's not just price point, but it's also about taste and consumer palette. So I think with all of that in mind, uh, we're very excited. We believe the brand resonates with where the South African customer is today. And it dovetails very nicely with what our strategy is uh, within the broader group, within the convenience channel. So very excited and looking forward to bringing the brand home uh, to South Africa. Uh, there's no doubt that it's a wonderful brand and its products are extraordinary, but usually you find Pretz in very, very high-density, very affluent pedestrian areas. Most people who work in South Africa will go to work either in a taxi and be dropped off quite close to the office. They might go for a lunch break in a mall, go to a food court where there are 20 or 30 choices. You don't have that sort of pedestrian buying or that Pret around the corner uh, from you necessarily in South South Africa. I'm wondering how you plan to roll it out to just hit a sweet spot of the right sort of demographics in the right sort of areas and the right sort of densities. Because as far as I can tell, where it's really worked is where there's a very high density of these sandwich bars. And I'm not sure South Africa is ready for that yet. So I think South Africa is, uh, you know, to some extent keeping up the pace with where the rest of the world is. There is growing amounts of urbanization. And yes, price point is very relevant. Um, our strategy, though, is to make sure that we um, get in in probably the sort of uh, LSM segments and locations where the brand has some early stage recognition. And that gives us, I think, a quick win. It, uh, it really allows us to get supply chain and other areas right, which is very important for bringing in a global brand and then really rolling out at scale. But I can tell you this much, Bruce, our strategy isn't just around high LSM retail um, areas. We will be looking at very unique channels. Um, I've spoken about the convenience channel. If you look at the growth of that segment um, and what that's done and taken away from from retailers, that's going to be a very important play. Um, If you look at the way food service is becoming more and more relevant in the convenience channel and is becoming a uh, consumption pattern for South African consumers, we believe the prep piece will fit in. So um, there is going to be phases to the growth. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. You want to go in where the brand is known, but we are not going to curate this just for a certain high LSM market. We believe scale is relevant. And I think that obviously is what Pret saw in us as a local partner who is able to deliver that scale. Um, and that's something which is going to be really relevant um, as we get this business going. Um, okay, I'm looking forward to seeing you roll it out. I really am. I'm a big fan of the brand. Are you doing it as a franchise model? Are you going to do it as a corporate rollout? What is the plan there? 
Our strategy is to keep a corporate rollout primarily because, Bruce, you want to maintain um, the, you know, the sort of um, quality, the proximity to the uh, customer. Uh, so we're very committed for now. Um, but let's see what the future holds. You know, um, I really want to prove our own Kool-Aid uh, first. Um, the customer centricity part, the whole part around really driving um, and putting, you know, putting the customer first, the freshness ingredients. We want to really control that and do it right. And, you know, hopefully with time, um, as the brand becomes more entrenched, we'll definitely look at opportunities. But for now, it's a corporate company owned uh, model. Um, and there's a lot of work for us to do. Uh, how big do you see your potential market being? I mean, is it a, a 10 store rollout in year one up to 105 years? What sort of what is your ambition? So it's going to be significant. We see this as a disruptive market entry. And I know many people are going to be fairly jaundiced, right? Because global brands have unfortunately never really resonated and hit it sort of, um, uh, you know, with the prime that what they need in South Africa. And that is a stigma. Um, however, we believe entrepreneurial spirit, granular on detail, strong supply chain, and really in the nuts and bolts of the business and generally putting the customer first. I think the South African consumer is going to enjoy the localization and all the features that Pret is known for um, and to really make it happen. Where is the first store? When does it open? So it's in a transient location. We aren't um, uh, immediately looking at uh, announcing the area primarily because it's going to be probably a cluster. The one thing you don't want to do is just open one okay. store and, you know, that's your one hive wonder. So we probably, um, you know, where we're ending up at this stage is a group of stores because that allows, again, scale. You do this one store and there's yeah, a line yeah. for the first month and then it's over. Um, you know, that's, you know, short-lived summer. We want to build sustainability. We want to build and we right. want to go in with scale when, in a cluster. So that's the game plan. When, and in Johannesburg. When is the cluster opening? Cluster in Johannesburg, is it this year or is it not quite this year? It's this year. It's very much this year. It's very much this year. Uh, and uh, again, we're keeping fairly tight because we want to sort of get everything of pieced and right. But we, we will uh, be opening up, God willing, this year and um, bringing some great coffee sandwich uh, and more uh, with the South African boat to the okay. consumer. I cannot wait to see it. Thank you, Hamza Faruqi, the Milat Group Chief Executive, bringing a global sandwich chain to South Africa. If you like Pret, you'll be excited. Hamza Faruqi this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Niven Posma will join us shortly. Niven is, uh, of course, a consultant and a speaker and an expert on the world of work. Interesting thoughts from her this evening. And then Wendy Nola this evening on what you do when you are going through your documents and suddenly you discover, suddenly you discover that the beneficiary you nominated to be on your life insurance policy is not your beneficiary after all. There is a name on that form, and it's not a name that you recognize. Somebody somehow 
has hacked into a system and has put in the details of someone you've never met. So that is what is on Wendy Nola's agenda this evening. Norman Drisselman, the chief executive at Retailability, a company you've not ever heard of, but you've got brands in there that you know very well, including Edgar's, the guy who bought Edgar's in the pandemic, on why he made that choice and whether it was a good one. Tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I have the extraordinary privilege of never going to work like I felt on some Mondays when I was going to school. And I was quite surprised to see a piece today by Nevin Postman, my guest this evening, as to lots of people, especially young people, who are making the transition from the world of education and into the world of work, that they are treating the world of work like they are going to school. Look, for me, it's a million years ago, Nevin, so maybe that's why I don't feel it. But I'm surprised that people don't get the sort of sense of enthusiasm, exuberance and joy from the world of work compared to the sometimes drudgy nature of school. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's a million years for me too. Um, so we, we have that in common. But actually, I mean, what I was speaking there about, Bruce, is more about the fact that people of all ages, not just youngsters who come in straight out of school or varsities, but people of all ages tend to make the mistake of treating work like school. So it's, it's different to that uh, idea of, you know, you've got that knot in the pit of your stomach, I've got to go to work tomorrow, I've got to go to school. It's more about how we treat work like school. And so one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make, and in fact was having a conversation with someone to Stanford about it just today that they're seeing the same thing, is that people, especially very smart people, especially very technically skilled people, put their head down and think that if they work really, really hard, somebody's going to notice and they're going to give them an A. And, and you know, that's the kind of stuff that works for you at school. It doesn't work for you at work. Okay. I mean, I, it's, it's such an interesting observation. It's not something I'd ever considered before. So explain to me, please, this, this phenomenon then as to why it takes hold and why it is so, I suppose, inculcated in us that we behave that way. Yeah, look, I don't think it's true of everyone, and I don't think it's um, always true. But certainly in my experience, the initial thought was prompted by a woman, Sally Krawcheck, and she wrote a, a LinkedIn article years I ago. I met Sally Krawcheck. Yeah, she used to be at oh, Citibank many years ago, and she's done lots of other wonderful things since then. She's a very capable corporate executive, yes. Highly capable. And so her article was the single biggest mistake that she's seen women make at work is treating it like school. I've then subsequently realized it's not just women. It's it's all kinds of people. This idea that the things that worked for you at school are going to work for you at work. And, and no one really gives you that memo. And if you're not fortunate enough to have mentors or sponsors or people who care about you to say, listen, all of the recipes for success, like you can do it for yourself, like your work will speak for itself, like there's only one right answer, like, you know, your biggest learning is going to come from the textbook. All of those things that work for you very well, when you are smart at all, when you're an achiever, things change at work and, and nobody really gives you that memo. And so you continue with the recipe for success that served you very well for the first 18 years, 20, 25 years of your life. And aren't quite sure ever why it is that despite all your incredible and impressive technical knowledge, somehow you're just not getting ahead. And, you know, we've all got plenty of examples of people 
we've met in our career, who are incredibly smart. They, they know the job backwards and forwards, inside out. And yet somehow don't seem to get the attention, don't seem to get the opportunities that accrue to people who are not just equipped with the technical skill, but have the relational skill that you need at work. We're talking to Nevin Postma this evening, Business Unusual, brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. So this is why corporate politics then begins to emerge. We start to play corporate games and we start to try and get ourselves noticed. And we start going to, I don't know, after work events and into meetings that we don't belong in. And then we start putting up our hands and asking questions. We start looking for attention. Maybe that's the school kid coming out again. Well, what's a better way of playing this corporate game of getting the recognition we know we deserve yet other people seem to be playing it better than we do Bruce you dropped for a second I'm, I'm sure I did as well um, I, I, was just, I was saying how do we play the corporate game then to get attention how do we yeah. get um, the acknowledgement that we we know we deserve but we don't want to be behaving like that 17 year old saying pick me pick me pick me sir <laughs> yeah, but you also don't want to be, be behaving like the 17-year-old say, look, but I passed the test. Why aren't you giving me an A, i.e. a promotion, i.e. a bonus, yeah. i.e. a whatever? You know, so somewhere between the endless narcissism and self-promotion and then on the other extreme, thinking that your work will speak for itself, which is simply not true. Work does not speak. People speak. Hopefully somewhere in the middle, you're not enrolled. Um, you're actually somebody who's making the most of your career recognizing that, listen, you can have all manner of skills, but if you don't have the right sponsors, you have a problem. You can be doing all manner of fantastic things, but if the right people don't know about it, you have a problem. You can want to do the right thing, but if you don't want to get involved in the politics, i.e. the informal, the unofficial side that exists in all organizations, well, then you're only going to go so far, and you might be technically exactly right, 100% right, well done, but you're not going to be effective. And at work, it's way more important that you are effective. Ideally, you are both, you know. Ideally, you are technically right, and you've got the right people knowing it and, and sponsoring you and getting it done. But frankly, in my opinion, in my experience, if you have to choose, and again, you know, ideally you don't have to choose, but if you have to choose, choose being effective, and you are effective with and through and because of other people, not because of how technically right you are. There is always that risk, and we've seen it happen time and time again, where you've got people who are very loyal, and they are like the puppy dog, um, and they yeah. pull, and it's wonderful, and their line manager tells them how wonderful they are. Their line manager tells them how yeah. happy the boss is. All the, the line yeah. manager is doing is telling the boss how well they're managing them, um, and, and how all of the the successes to their great superlative talents and uh, uh, the corporate landscape a, a high functioning good corporate landscape will acknowledge success and will draw up the very best talent and extrude from the talent the very best possible results but not all corporate workspaces are high functioning high reward environments and what happens if it is a slightly dysfunctional place where your boss is insecure and a twit and doesn't like your your brilliance and, and tries to steal yeah. credit for all of your hard work because that's that's a real thing that people go through every day yeah of course it's real for sure and i mean look let's just make the distinction that this is not just corporate environments you know i've worked in the public sector i've worked in the ngo sector 
I've worked uh, in the academic sector and I have a friend who is an academic who says, listen, you think corporate politics are bad. You should, you should see academic politics. The, and I think it's a, a, a Henry Kissinger line where he says the fights are so vicious because the stakes are so low. You know, so you're going to find this stuff, insecure managers. You're going to find human dynamics in every place that has got human beings, be it a corporate or any other organization. And, yeah, look, when it comes to your boss, context matters. Wouldn't it be wonderful if at school we only ever had these incredibly enlightened, loving, supportive teachers who fired up the love of learning in us the rest of our lives? But for the most part, we've got teachers who are just trying to get through a syllabus and trying to get through the end of the day without killing some kids, you know. It's the same thing work. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful Absolutely. if you had managers for mm. your intrinsic worth and made you and your life and your career just sore? Well, you may find some of those. I've certainly found some of those. And for the rest, I've found perfectly fine managers, but nothing amazing. And then I found one toxic manager. And you've really got to understand quite what your options are in that situation and make some decisions. I mean, when you're working for an insecure manager, uh, a manager who's threatened by your achievements, where there's all kinds of, of stuff going on behind the scenes. Like I said, you've got to make some decisions. And I always say, look, if you don't trust your boss, you really are probably going to need to find another boss because it's hell of a difficult yeah. to bring out the best in yourself, to deliver your best work when you're constantly watching your back you're constantly second guessing but if your boss doesn't trust you um you're probably going to need to find another job and, and when we trust someone either upwards or downwards what we're trusting is we're trusting their competence so do they know what they're doing or can they figure it out do we trust their caring do they give a damn about us and this can go upwards and downwards and do we, we do trust their credibility and their, their character? So can we trust what they are saying? And what they say they're saying to us is what they're saying to other people. And, you know, it's always interesting for me when I talk about trust that only one of those things is technical, your competence. The other two are character. They're relational. They're about who that person is as a person. And so this idea that you can get through work, you can get through a, a career and switch off to your boss would that it were the case? It, it's simply no. not. A boss has enormous no. control, not just over your job and your career, but over your life because you take work home with you. Are you ready to blush? I want to see if I can feel you through the microphone. Uh, Len, who I think you know, uh, Len Konar <laughs> says, Niven is a star. I had a pleasure of working with her at the Reserve Bank. That I didn't know about you. I observed her intellect and passion and pragmatism. She was awesome at the NGO, which she turned around. She's a Harvard published author. I am a great fan. Oh, look at that. And then Aww. he points out academic politics is draining after 30 years at university. It still continues. Dog eats dog. So you're talking about very real things, <laughs> reaching very real people this <laughs> evening. Niven Posma, thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you back on. Niven Posma, a superhero of uh, public sector corporate sector too talking sense in a very confusing world of work the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by apsa cib unlocking sustainable finance for mining across africa through positive disruption to unearth their clients growth ambitions apsa is a registered fsp the money show consumer ninja Wendy Nola is our consumer ninja, and we're going to be talking about something fairly 
touchy. If you died tomorrow, very, very sad. Everyone's devastated, by the way, if you did. Who would get your life insurance payment? Who would? Well, you've just named them, haven't you? In the back of your mind, you've verbalized it. Are you sure that the person you've just thought of or whose name you've just mentioned is the person on that life insurance beneficiary form? Tonight, Wendy Nola about a man who found a stranger listed as his beneficiary. This is a horror story, Wendy Nola. Hello, Bruce. Yes, uh, I think you could say that. And also, it, it, it leads to all those questions. How did it happen? Was it fraud? Was it a mistake? Either way, if I had to die, would that person then get the the, the policy proceeds paid out to them? How would it work? And and you, you can imagine all the theories that get thrown around, especially on social media, where this particular um case study played out. So, uh, Matthew Kenia, um, he took out a life policy in 2022 with Discovery Life. He already had a medical cover with the company and he thought, let me do this. He said, I did all the necessary. I added my mom as a beneficiary, the 100% beneficiary, signed up and carried on with my life as if all was normal and okay. So, I thought... Um, he then w made this horrible discovery. He went public with a story, tweeting a Discovery Life agent added his or her own mother as a beneficiary for my life cover. When I signed up, I added my mom, who has the same surname as me. Very hard not to do. Um, I submitted new documents last year, and um, and still this has not been changed. He found out during a random check on his policy that there under beneficiaries he saw a name he didn't recognize, uh, Leona, listed uh, as his mother and as being the 100% beneficiary of his policy. He said, I panicked and called Discovery to tell them what had happened and they said they will help and I must follow procedure. So he gave them all his mom's details. He says, it's been a month now with no progress and every time I call, they say they can't. They, they can't help me. So this is the problem. He went to social media because he felt it wasn't being heard on a very um, important, potentially, you know, matter with potentially horrible consequences in his mind. He was assuming there, as many would, I think, that there was some kind of fraud involved, right? How does somebody else's name end up on your policy as the sole beneficiary? Um, anyway, he says after he tweeted, Discovery Life higher up called him, to apologize. He says, and they closed off the whole episode with a tweet which read, thanks for taking our calls, Mr. Kenya. We apologize for the inconvenienced cause. Uh, this was an isolated error and we'd like to reassure you that it would not have led to any payments being made to the wrong beneficiary. But you can, as you can imagine, Bruce, I mean, a lot of responses to that on social media were, you're right, you know, this happens. Yeah, it's fraudulent. People, you know, you've got to check your beneficiaries because other people's names get substituted, da, da, da. So, should we be worried? Well, this is what Discovery Life told me. Again, saying it's unique and isolated case where multiple beneficiary identifier fields, including the date of birth, coincidentally matched and unfortunately the incorrect beneficiary name was displayed on the app. Huh? So, apparently when taking out the policy, Matthew wasn't able to provide his mother's full ID number. So they put her date of birth as the identifier for her. 
um, which contributed to the mismatching of beneficiaries' names. So that Leona had the same birth date as his mother. And that's what the system coughed up and then put as his, uh, as his beneficiary. But on the actual application, um, he the actual his mother's name is there, but this was generated on by a computer and put on the app. Huh, are you keeping up, Bruce? <laughs> I am, I am, I am. I'm still, I mean, unfortunately, you've taught me how to smell rats, and there is a rat in the kitchen, and I don't know what I'm going to well, do. Well, Discovery says if, if this, this, this case has thrown up something important, and that is that no longer can somebody just say, well, I don't have the full ID number, here's the date of birth. They they won't accept that. They come, the, the policy won't be activated, right? So you have to have the full ID number because that is unique. There are some cloned ones that we're not going to get into that. It doesn't apply here. Um, Discovery Life says has string, stringent measure, measures in place to ensure that the correct beneficiaries are paid at the stage of a claim. Um, and we continually upgrade our systems, blah, blah, blah. Um, a policy cannot now be activated without a beneficiary's full ID number. So th thank you, Matthew, for that. We recommend that our clients con regularly review their, in their information as Matthew did. Um, and then lastly, there's absolutely no connection between any of the agents, that's the Discovery Life agents, and the beneficiary on the system. This was a unique and honest error, which we are glad to have okay. resolved. Um, so I had a few more questions, obviously. So is it true that Matthew didn't have his mother's ID at hand when taking out the policy? I asked him. He said, you know what? I'm not sure. Asked for the call recording. Days went by. Hadn't got it. So I went back to Discovery and they said, um, no, they, they, for privacy reasons, they don't send email, uh, don't email these call recordings directly to clients. They have to apply. Uh, requested via a privacy portal and Matthew hadn't done that when I spoke to Discovery a couple of days ago. Um, and then about them saying this error would never have resulted in any erroneous payments. Do you remember a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, the case of Vuga, Bruce, he'd been paying a monthly premium for yes. two, more, more than 22 years um, yeah. accidental death uh, for his wife when she died last March. He went to update the policy and he found out that his wife was never named on the policy. Only he was. And when he said, oh, so had she died uh, through accidentally, would you have paid? Yes, they said. He said, well, hold on. The policy says that you wouldn't have. It's easy for you to say now that you would have. And anyway, remember, we succeeded in getting all his policies, uh, premiums repaid. So I pushed more for more info on Discovery's claim that that Leona woman would never actually have been paid a cent had Matthew died. And I said, how do you verify? It was quite a long list, but um, basically they want, if there's now a claim, they want to see ID documents. Um, they, they want to see, uh, they would have, would have wanted to have seen Matthew's ID documents and death certificate. And so some it's, fraudulent stranger wouldn't have been able to it, get that. Absolutely. It's, it's basically it's, yeah. KYC, isn't it? I mean, it's know your customer. Um, and, you know, this is pointed out, a, 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 a flaw in the system, which is uh, concerning. Yes. Um, and so it's just worth triple checking because nobody, in a moment of bereavement, it is a little bit like in a moment of illness when you've got to check in at the hospital and they start interrogating you and demanding swabs of DNA and you, all you want to do is lie down and weep yourself to sleep. Um, it, yes. The, the less bureaucracy that you have to deal with at a time of trauma, the better.
and there should be no complications. And so it's really worth double-checking these things to make sure that there aren't any, what, what, what they call it, uh, you know, just... You know, errors, unique errors. Errors, <laughs> errors, unique errors. And so also, just make sure that you don't have a unique also, error. Also, Bruce... There is such a thing as insurance form, and it has happened that that um, there are yeah. many cases where a fraudulent uh, beneficiary has been added fraudulently. So, bottom line, check check go onto the apps or whatever you need, wherever you need to go and check that your beneficiaries are your actual chosen beneficiaries and not some stranger that you've never heard of. Wendy Noda, Consumer Ninja, on a Tuesday evening. Words of warning, as always. Thank you, Wendy Nola, very, very much. Half past seven, time for your latest Eyewitness News. After Eyewitness News, Chief Executive of Retailability, Norman Drieselman. Uh, the Money Show. Shapeshifters. Oh, there we go. Uh, the Money Show, brought to you by APSA CIB, bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, long overdue, Norman Dresselman, the Chief Executive of Retailability. Now, chances are you've not heard of the company run by tonight's shapeshifter, but you will know the brands it owns. It's got more than 600 shops across uh, Southern Africa. Uh, the chief executive of retailability, Norman Dresselman, was due on the show a couple of weeks ago, but you got flooded, Norman. Um, KZN no, has been a, a brunt of the storm after storm after storm. I hope everything was okay. No, all, all good now. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, we uh, a resilient bunch down here. <laughs> well, you have to be, don't you? <laughs> My goodness me. Yeah. Now, talk to me then about, uh, I suppose, you're most famous and be sort of really leapt into the public eye. Um, you you bought Edcon out of Business Rescue, bought 130 of the 194 stores during the pandemic after it got into serious trouble. And I remember that day so clearly, the night that the president announced we were going into lockdown. And then a piece of audio ended up on my phone from Grant Patterson in which he broke down telling his suppliers he couldn't pay them. And that was the beginning of the end of that part of, of Edcon. But you saw an opportunity in there. And um, we really um, bought into it at a time of deep, deep distress. How did you see an opportunity at that moment during a time of such deep, dark uncertainty for all of us? Yeah, I, I think it's really the, a case of us um, you know, knowing that, that all deep, dark moments don't last forever. Um, and myself and our shareholders, we, we saw an opportunity in a, a brand that has been around for over 90 years in Edgar's. And that brand loyalty that's been built up all those years, it's, it's, it's hard to erode through one crisis. Um, and if there's sustainable value within that brand and within the stores and the, and the product it sells, it's something that uh, with the right approach and the right management can, can get through most crises. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's looking beyond the short term and, and seeing long-term value behind the Edgar's brand. Yeah, and it, but it's just it, it's doubly incredible considering the environment we were in at a time that you were making that call. Yeah. Did it help that you'd previously worked with Grant? I mean, I don't know how closely you'd worked with Grant Patterson, but you'd been within yeah. the sort of mass smart stable previously. So you certainly would have known each other. 
Yeah, well, no, we definitely knew each other, and I, and I gave him a call once I'd heard that it uh, that Ed Connor gone into business rescue to to see what what was going to happen through the process. Um, so so that helped. I think the fact that we had previously bought legit from Edcon uh, gave us an insight as to how Edcon ran businesses and what information was available uh, for us to be able to assess and make the right decision. Um, and then, um, you know, I think what we also had through that process, which was an advantage, was the business rescue process, uh, which to an extent would have protected our shareholders. Um, so, so yeah, I think knowing Grant, having done a transaction with Edcon before, um, and you know, you, no matter what size retailer you are, if you're an entrepreneur at heart, you see opportunity where others see risk, um, and that's what we did as a group. And what is the status of Edgar's today? Because you you bought 130 stores, as best I can tell. No sooner did you buy the stores and uh, you know excluded a whole about a third of them that you started opening brand new ones. So you've you've certainly taken the concept and uh, have expanded it since that first acquisition. What is it now? Three years ago? Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine. How it's been three years, but it, but it has. Yeah. We, we you know. I think it's key for us to keep taking the Edgar's brand to the markets where it makes sense. I think we've learned a lot over the three years. Uh, in, in all reality, there are some locations we took over that still don't work for us, um, and we're in the process of rationalising a couple of those stores out. But you're spot on. I mean, it, in November last year, we opened at Three Rivers Verenigen. Uh, we're looking at opening in Mount and Botswana this year. So, so where where the market makes sense. We're going to go uh, opening and growing the, the footprint for Edgar's. Um, and, and I think the hard work has started to pay off. Uh, you know, we, we really see Edgar's as a, as a business with two prongs, a beauty business and a fashion one. Um, and very quickly, we managed to reestablish our dominance in the beauty markets. Uh, and we keep growing in that space. And we've been able to preserve or restore and now preserve our market share in that space. Uh, and the private label work that we're doing in fashion with our Kelso and Stone Harbor brands is paying dividend. Uh, the price repositioning, um, we put 12% deflation two years in a row into into that product, and that's given us a lot of traction and unit volume, uh, which is explain, great. Explain, okay, no, you, yeah. you're now talking, you, you were talking English up until a moment ago, Norman, and then you started speaking yeah. Italian. It's a, it's, a, it's a foreign language. It's a bit like trying to read a doctor's prescription. Um, you, you, you built in 12% deflation so you planned to reduce prices over time so that instead of making a big fat profit margin in one year you would make a slightly smaller margin but over a more sustained period of time yeah and and what it also allows us to do is to make more of edgar's product affordable to the mid to upper market that we're targeting uh, as opposed to purely an upper market or a niche market. Um, so, so the key strategy behind that was broadening our appeal to, to the South African market. And that's, that's critical in Edgar's success, being a, a big box footprint. Uh, it, it's been uh, it's been an amazing story, an amazing turnaround, and of course, legit was in the business uh, for about two years before you bought Edgar's in as well. Did you sort of pitch for Jet? Did you think that Jet would be a good idea? Were you happy to let that one go because that seemed to be at the time anyway the jewel in the the Edcon crown? It it, it was, uh, and and we looked at both businesses. Um, so we definitely did a bit of due diligence on Jet uh, as well as Edgar's. 
And and our decision to go with Edgar's was that it was uh, more differentiated from some of the brands that we already own within our stable. Um, the crossover with Legit and our Swagger brands uh, in, in the Legit space, uh, on the Jet space, was a bit too too tight for us. And this was an opportunity to move into segments that we hadn't played in before in the beauty space in particular. So we we were encouraged and enticed by Edgar's margin as opposed to Jet's margin at the time and and the lack of cannibalization to our existing formats. It, it's yeah. Your passion for retail, where does it come from? Because you're not. I mean, the, the business of retailability goes back about forty years. So you weren't there at the start. But when I last checked, I don't know if Cliff Lines, the founder, is still a chairman of the board. But it feels like a, one of those old-fashioned KZN family businesses. Yeah. So so Cliff is still chairman of the board, and and uh, we had a we catch up frequently, and I saw him again today. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I joined retailability eight years ago, um, coming out of the MassMart stable, um, and, and retail—it's hard to—it's hard to explain. But as a CA converted to retail, I think I got better at selling stuff than doing accounts, um, <laughs> and and just absolutely love the dynamic nature of it. Uh, and you know, when we we look at South Africa's retail landscape, it's a it's a cutthroat landscape. It's a tough landscape. It's a consumer under yeah. extraordinary duress. But there's been a big switch and a very welcome switch to so much more domestically sourced clothing across all of the big retailers. It all used to be big brands and Levi's and uh, and all sort of you know really fancy imported gear. But I think you know the duties and the the cost of those products and exchange controls have really been made that more sort of a boutique offering nowadays? Yeah, I think uh, the nature of retail today, I mean, cutthroat 100%, um, which is probably why it appeals to super competitive people. Um, but but in terms of local sourcing, uh, yeah, I think the strategy for success going forward is going to be a balanced sourcing strategy. Um, I think it's very difficult to shift all your production to South African manufacturers, particularly when you reflect on skills base across a broad range of product categories. So balanced uh, a balanced sourcing strategy between offshore and local is is a, you know, in our view advisable. Um, and we currently get close to forty five percent of our product locally sourced. Um, and where required, we, we bring in from offshore. Um, and what percentage of what you're selling across retailability then is imported? Because my sense of it is that there's a, a growing proportion of at least domestically or, or regionally sourced. Yeah, I think because we started as a much smaller business, we relied on a lot of local, local manufacturing from the early days. So we, we've stayed consistently around 45% locally sourced. Um, and then with Edgar's coming on board, both in the cosmetic space as well as in the international brands that are represented in our, in our stores, uh, we sit at about 55% imported, whether directly or indirectly. Okay. And where do you see the opportunity for this business? I mean, it's a 40-year-old family business, effectively. You've got some private equity yeah. money in there. Private equity doesn't like to stick around forever. Um, and at some point, they're going to want to get out. At some point, they're going to want to put you on the market. How? What, what is the thinking along, uh, along those lines? Yeah, I think um, internally we're staying very focused on completing the Edgar's turnaround. Um, there's a lot of work for us still to do to unlock all the value with inside Edgar's. 
Uh, you know, we, we, we're blessed to have two formats in style and legit that are underrepresented in this African landscape. So there's a lot of store expansion there. Um, but exactly right. I mean, I think private equity do have a time horizon, which will result in conversations uh, by shareholders at some point in time. Uh, but for now, as a board, we're incredibly focused on the on the Edgar's turnaround and completing the, the journey. Um, should something come across uh, our table at some point, I'm sure it will be reflected on. Yeah, absolutely. And and the and the competitive landscape, the South African retail competitive landscape, how are you seeing it shape up? You I mean we're seeing Mr. Price do very well in the public sphere. Other retailers have gone global and some have bought some terrible businesses and have burnt their fingers so badly and Steinhoff made everybody's name look bad um in in European retail for a while there. I, I'm wondering how you see their competitive landscape. Yeah, look, I think within the South African context, uh, retail is strong and super competitive. So it's going to be interesting to see how over 2024, the fight for a bigger slice of a smaller pie is going to take place. Um, I do think the big retailers are going to have to look for where the next round of expansion is going to come from, bearing in mind, I see comp growth this year being incredibly tight and hard to achieve um, So, in terms of like-on-like stores. So I do think there will be guys looking offshore for for investment opportunities. But I think we still seems like we're still as Africans trying to find the right way to buy international retail businesses. Are you in that game at all, or are you happy to be also a regional player? Yeah, I think uh, in our space we're very happy with Southern Africa. Um, I think it's markets that we understand and are, and are uh, incredibly underrepresented in. So while we've got scope to grow within markets we understand, I think we'll definitely stick to our knitting um, and leave the more challenging stuff to the bigger boys. It's amazing, isn't it, how some of the most successful performers on stock markets, certainly that's the place where we have visibility, have been companies that have stuck to their knitting, that haven't got too clever, that haven't got too fancy. They've worked out where the market is going. They've continued to serve their South African customer. They've, so if you serve your South African customer with respect and don't rip them off, they tend to come back again. Um, and, you know, while average household incomes are under extreme duress, those that continue to, I don't know, apply old-fashioned retail principles seem to to hold up rather well. Yeah, I think it's spot on. I mean, the basics of retail haven't changed much. Uh, you know, a lot of the, sh- the shiny frills and spills, you know, shift slightly, but the fundamentals don't change. Uh, and one of the, the underplayed concepts of retail is extreme discipline within your strategy. Um, and there's always the danger of chasing the next shiny thing. And I think the guys who, who avoid that and stay disciplined are the ones who tend to perform on a more sustainable basis. Uh, you know, the trick is never to forget what made you great in the first place. Um, and that, that can happen quite easily uh, when you're chasing the next quarter's result. Are you, but you're not driven by those same sort of pressures, are you? I mean, the private equity guys, of course, are, you know, they can be quite they can put quite a lot of pressure on but as a family business you not get a little bit more leeway to be a, a touch more strategic perhaps than if you were operating in a more vigorous quarter by quarter measurement cycle yeah i think it definitely does allow us to make some longer term decisions uh you know but at the same time uh you know, with an owner with an owner uh, run business, uh, you know it's a, it's a lot more personal when you're making decisions about uh, you know one man's wealth, um, and uh, you know we we take that quite personally, and we don't ever want to let Cliff down, so we we graft quite hard in that space. 
Um, but yes, it, it allows you out the public uh, to to make some uh, calls that are good for the business and not necessarily understood by the masses in the short term. You know, and that's a great advantage that we have being private. Norma Dresselman, Chief Executive of Retailability. More with him in just a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. CEO of Retailability, the owners of Edgar's, uh, is Norman Dresselman. My experience, Norman, in this market is that people who succeed over the long term are those that are not only deeply strategic, but those are enormously opportunistic. And you strike me as being a strategic opportunist. Um, would you would you wear that as a badge with pride in this market? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think uh, you've been too kind there, but but definitely. I mean, I think uh, it's, well, it's just about lucky. seeing you can admit uh, to, opportunities. You could admit, yeah. you could admit to being just lucky, which is fine too. But I use instead of saying lucky, I think polite is more strategic and opportunistic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think those who take chances get lucky. Um, so, so no, spot on. And I mean, I think. Uh, What's exciting for us is, is is that we still see so much opportunity in the market. Um, so so we we very much you kind of say where do you see retailability going over time? Uh, we we really we feel that we're at the cusp of the next growth curve. Um, so so we're going to be disciplined in how we do it, but we we're going to continue to grow and and try and uh, make some waves in the market and have some fun. But we're in a country where so many people just see monsters under the bed all the time and they're petrified of politics, they're petrified of a weak economy. What keeps you focused on the opportunity set? Yeah, I, th- I think um, the, the logic that uh, it's easier to control the things you can control uh, and work around the things that you can't. Um, so there's a resilience that we were joking about earlier, you know, about the third time your house is flooded, the, the sense of humor is gone, but we've got a good process for cleaning the house. Um, I think it's a, it's about how you bounce back from the, the pitfalls. Uh, you know, this, the three-year journey of Edgar's hasn't been a simple and easy one, and we've hit a number of stumbling blocks. I think if we stopped at the first, we wouldn't have carried on and unlocked the value. Um, and, and I think that's the approach you've got to have, is there's a resilience that needs to come through that South Africans are famed for. Fabulous. Thank you, Norman Drizzleman, Chief Executive at Retail Ability.